0: wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio on Friday, July 15th, 2011. Today is episode 2013. It's being broadcast from our studio in McKee's Rocks, PA. My name is Cliff Slotnick, or the Z-Man. My co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, is going to be participating remotely. He's in Confederate country today teaching a mold class in Fredericksburg, Virginia, At the controls is our engineer, Austin Stone-Cold, Novak. Today's segments include the IAQ Radio trivia question, an interview with our guest, Lou Harriman of Mason Grant Consulting in New Hampshire, and uh, we'll have some comments from our technical director, Dr. Dieter Weil. Check out our Facebook page. It's IAQ Radio Programme. I write and post a blog after each show. Check it out at our website, www.iaqradio.com. Now it's time to thank our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connection, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Indoor Don- Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com.
2: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndonn.com.
0: Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine your source for cleaning and maintenance news, visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their (laughs) support. To listen to the show live, follow the link on your invitation or go to our website, which is iaqradio.com. The show can also be downloaded from our website or from iTunes. Don't forget, you can earn ABIHCM points, IICRC continuing education credits, or ACAC renewal credits by emailing Radio Joe and requesting the quiz. Remember, Radio Joe's email is joe.use at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit IAQ Training Institute's website for the schedule of the training courses you trust at iaqtraining.com. Dot com. time for our trivia question win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IEQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ Radio trivia question every week. Submitting your answer is easy. Email it to czlotnik at zlotnik at cs.com or if you're listening to the show live via your computer just text in your answer. Congratulations. to John Lapotere for being the first person to identify The Price is Right as the longest-running game show in North American television history. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, Friday, July 15, 2011, has been sponsored by Cochran & Associates, the indoor air quality industry's dedicated marketing and public relations firm. Now for this week's trivia question. Ten inches of snow equals how many inches of rain in water content. Today's guest is Lou Harriman. Lou is Director of Research at Mason Grant Consulting in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. He has spent 35 years researching and solving problems related to humidity and moisture problems in buildings and industrial processes. In 2002, Lou was the lead author and project manager for the ASHRAE Humidity Control Design Guide. This was the first book to deal specifically with the issue of humidity control in 100 years of the society's history. That book has been translated into Japanese, and in 2011, the book is being translated and published in Mandarin as well. In two thousand six, Lou was the chief thermographer and lead author for the General Science Administra- I'm sorry, General Service Administration's protocol for the exterior inspection of building enclosures using thermal cameras. He also serves as the national peer in GSA's engineering excellence program. In 2009, Lou was the lead author and project manager for the ASHRAE Guide for Buildings in Hot and Humid Climates. This book summarizes the experiences of building professionals in hot and humid climates around the world and also summarizes ASHRAE's guidance on ventilation, energy efficiency, thermal comfort, and mold risk reduction with that respect to hot and humid climates. In 2010, Lou was elected a fellow of ASHRAE. He is currently the chair of ASHRAE's Technical Committee 1.12, which is Moisture Management in Buildings, and is also the chair of ASHRAE's Position Document Committee on Indoor Mold. He's a knowledgeable and all-around good guy. Uh, Good afternoon, Lou. We have some intro music for you
3: is relative but relative to what? If I were quizzed on what it is then I'd be on the spot. So just in case to save my face I'll look it up today and then if someone brings it up I'll casually say humidity is the amount of moisture in the air. Relative humidity is the percentage of water vapor actually in the air compared with the most that the air could hold at each temperature.
0: All right, okay, Uh, guest one, that looks like the right answer. Please text in your contact information and we will uh, get you your prize. Joe, how about starting with the first question? Sure, hello
1: Lou, welcome.
0: Thanks very
4: much, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here as always. Okay.
1: great to talk to you, and it was it was wonderful to see you at uh, Indoor Air 2011. And uh, I thought maybe we'd start with that. What was this your first Indoor Air the uh, Indoor Society for Indoor Air Quality and Climate?
4: It, it was. I I haven't had the privilege of attending any of the uh, other conferences before. It was the first uh, the first conference I've been to of its type. Uh, so it was uh, quite a quite an experience for me.
1: Uh, you know, I felt the same way, Lou and Carl Grimes and I did a show right afterwards. We we gave our impressions. I'm curious if if you could let the listeners know what your impressions were of the uh, conference back in June. I guess that was.
4: Sure. Um, I, I guess the there are many different uh, impressions that I had, but uh, in very general terms the first impression that you get at indoor air uh, 2011 was the international aspect of the conference there were people there from all over the world um, from china from finland from uh, all over europe uh... Even from all types of north and south america it was really quite an international uh, outfit that was the, the first impression that i had is that this is not a, a group of uh, north american people talking to each other this is a very collaborative effort um, Hey, the next impression that I had is that, uh, unlike other conferences that, I, that I've been to in the past, uh, it really looked like this was a conference where there are some very important results being discussed, and that these uh, research results uh, came from, from research that's extremely new, just in the last couple of years, and, and so often the conferences that you go to are really rehashing things that people know about for, for decades, and this was all new stuff to me, at least.
1: Okay. Can you give us a, an example of one of the new findings that you find interesting?
4: Sure. Um, yeah, I've got uh, got a number of them. I think that the um, the big news for me was the progress that's been made by uh, the the uh, metagenomicists, the the people that understand uh, DNA analysis of living things. Um, in particular, uh, one of the keynote speakers was uh, Dr. Craig Venter. And uh, Dr. Venter, a uh, very appropriate name for an indoor air quality conference, Dr. Venter. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Craig was the, uh, was the gentleman that first decoded the human genome uh, about, I guess, about 15 years ago or so. And he did that uh, in his own company without, uh, without government support, which was pretty incredible at the time. Um, so he's... His company, his 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 foundation, is cooperating with the uh, with the Sloan Foundation uh, to try and understand the indoor biome. In other words, the living things that are going in the indoor environment, and the information that came out of that, I, I think, is uh, profoundly important for us. <laughs> uh, just just a number of uh, things which we can which we can talk about.
0: Yeah. Um,
3: hmm.
0: I just thought it was interesting myself. Go ahead, Cliff. No, no, it's a follow-up to Joe's. I just wondered whether there are any more. I hate to just limit you to one. I mean, if you've got several more that you want to mention, let's go ahead and talk about
4: it. I sure do. I Actually, to elaborate on, on on some of the points that Dr. Venner made in his keynote uh, is the astonishing diversity of the living things that are around us all the time. Uh, he had some very interesting numbers Uh um, <laughs> uh, for example, I, I, we think we know that there are about 20,000 uh, genes that are pretty much of human origin. We know that partly because of researchers like Dr. Venner and, and the other metagenomicists that have been looking at this. Um, but at the same time, in our bodies, in addition to those 20,000 uh, 20, genes of human origin, there are approximately 10 million genes of microbial origin. So you could sort of make the case that uh, human beings are just a convenient way for microbes to transport themselves around the world, <laughs> and that that was just mind-boggling to me. Is that is that it's possible with genomic techniques to pick apart the DNA, reassemble it, and figure out how many organisms there are in any in any given location? And that was I think this is really important to know <laughs> because we we think about humans and germs, and. Uh, Humans and viruses and bacteria, and what we haven't really thought about or really been conscious of until the last couple of years is that they're composed mostly of those things.
0: <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: You know, you mentioned new research that w- that was presented there, as opposed to rehashing of, of of old knowledge. How will things that you learned, or issues, or theories? That you learned at the conference affect your future research, and/or your Ashray activities, and/or your consulting practice.
4: Well, I think um, I, certainly uh, most immediate use is the uh, some of the other things that that the researchers talked about, which I can, can talk about some more. Uh, but at the moment in Ashray, we have a committee, and I'm I'm privileged to be the chair of it. To rewrite our ASHRAE uh, uh, mold position document, mold and moisture management position document. And uh, a large number of the research uh, findings are going to be helpful as we think about what to put in that position document. So that will be of immediate use. If I look longer term, uh, what excites me tremendously about what's happening in the indoor air research area is that we're going to understand causation more than we understand. Have ever ever understood it before? So there, we know that, that there are health effects, and they're mostly negative of um, of uh, moisture indoors. And and, uh, and what we haven't really known to date is is the exact pathways by which uh, problems in, in buildings become a health problem. And it's it seems very clear to me that from listening to the research involved that uh, that we're going to know um, the causation, and that's. Very exciting because if you understand the causation, then you can decide what is or is not appropriate to do with respect to government uh, regulations, uh, to uh, behavior, for uh, what uh, what makes sense from a designer's point of view, from a building owner's point of view, and from a uh, occupant's point of view.
1: Well, when you mentioned the the mold and moisture, the position statement, and and that some of the research presented there would. I guess be reflected to some degree in that statement can you give our listeners a little a better idea of what components of the statement will be most affected so in other words will the the discussion of the potential health issues the discussion of the uh, potential uh, pathways the discussion of uh, you know the, the remediation what do you think will be most affected by what you learned at IA 2011.
4: Well, I, I don't think that there's any one area that's likely to change in significant ways. We're now in our 10th draft of that uh, revised document, so we've done a great deal of thinking about it. A lot of very talented people, very experienced people have have done some good thinking about it. So I don't expect that there's going to be major changes, uh, except perhaps in tone. But um, until we have a, a draft that's been approved by the committee and approved by the ASHRAE uh, uh, Tech Council, uh, not much I can share with you about, uh, about, the, about more detail. But I, I can give you a couple of examples of things that struck me with great force uh, about the results from, uh, from Indoor Air uh, uh, 2011. Uh, for instance, uh, Dr. Jordan Pescia at Yale, uh, one of the metagenomicists that's being funded by the Sloan Foundation to investigate the indoor environment, the, uh, the folks at Yale are, of course, very concerned about all aspects of the indoor environment, but they've been looking at, at healthcare facilities, uh, in particular. And uh, one of the things that they've found, for instance, with one of the problematic fungi that, that we have in healthcare facilities, Aspergillus fumigatus, is that the uh, the components that, that those uh, fungi apparently produced really depend not just on the moisture content and not just on what it is that they happen to be eating, uh, but also the temperature at which they're grown. And one of the points that, that Dr. Pesha mentioned in, in his conversation, and it went by very quickly, is, is that uh, the, uh, the more negative aspects of uh, Aspergillus fumigas seem to be uh, generated, metabolites generated by that fungus at fairly low temperatures. So 60 Fahrenheit to 70 Fahrenheit uh, are areas that, um, rather temperature ranges, where there seems to be more problematic uh, metabolites as opposed to 80, 90, 100 degree Fahrenheit where the fungus can survive, but in fact really doesn't produce much that's especially problematic. Um, And to me, from an ASHRAE perspective, what that immediately suggests to me is that the areas downstream of cooling coils, which are very likely to be at, uh, in that temperature range of 60 to 70 degrees Fahrenheit, are an area for even more attention than perhaps what we were giving them before. Um, this is all very preliminary information, and of course, I'm not speaking for ASHRAE. It, this struck me as someone who's familiar with HVAC systems, that if we have fungus that produces different, different uh, metabolites, some of which are problematic, some of which are problematic in particular... Growth ranges—that's awfully important for us to know uh, in the engineering community.
1: Absolutely, that's that's interesting. I I didn't pick that up. I I missed. I caught a little bit of that presentation, but that is interesting because it's somewhat. I guess it's a little counterintuitive to what people had thought in the past.
4: Well, I don't know that it's counterintuitive as much as it's just unknown. I mean, I, I think that Aspergillus fumigatus, which is uh, a well-known, you know, problematic uh, fungus, in uh, uh, Healthcare settings where people have compromised immune systems. We know we've known for decades that it's a problem, but I don't think anyone knew before the metagenomics got at the problem that that uh, that these creatures produce different uh, toxins when they're growing at different temperature levels. Uh, that's you know,
1: news. <laughs> Absolutely. I, well, I guess I, I, maybe I used the wrong term, but it, you know, it would seem reasonable to assume that at the temperatures which as i understand it that it prefers to grow at which are higher than the temperatures you mentioned that it would be actively you know uh, metabolizing and really causing more problems and and what you're saying is that maybe that's not the case based on that research well,
4: I, I don't want to, you know, attempt to understand Dr. Pesch's research when I only listened to him for 12 minutes in a super packed, uh, you know, presentation. I, I'm hoping that I understood it correctly, but I, I think that um, it's probably, if I, if I can try and remember the the conversation and and his presentation, it's a statistical probability thing, you know. Uh, what are the likelihoods of those of, of those compounds being produced? Well, the likelihood and the volume of them is more likely to be produced at a lower temperature. Uh, so, what does that tell you? I mean, it doesn't mean that you know keep the temperature at seventy and you won't have any problems. That seems very unlikely to me. It's more likely that it's a question of um, you know, probably there's likely to be a bigger problem at the lower temperatures than probably there's likely to be a less a lesser problem at the at the higher temperatures.
1: Interesting.
0: Sure. No, I, I just wondered whether there were any other aha moments. It sounds like that was, uh, you know, pretty important for you. Uh, anything else that really surprised you from the?
4: Well, definitely you... a couple others. Um, I, I think the the next one in, on my list of of gosh, this is going to be very important came from uh, David Miller,
1: um,
4: a researcher uh, at uh, Carleton. Uh, University and also a consultant to Health Canada. Uh, that's in Montreal, and then Health Canada, of course, for the for the for the nation of Canada. And what David Miller reported is that um, their research begins to show that um, the the types of fungal metabolites that end up causing problems uh, for people who are asthmatic. Uh, one of them being D-beta-glucan. A uh, a compound that is a product of fungal metabolism uh, it comes in different flavors there are different d beta glucans it's and the problematic um, d beta glucan is one that they now see as being triple helix d beta glucan. None of that means much to me other than the fact that it's it's a particular flavor of uh of uh, of, of, of problem that <laughs> uh that happens, uh, and the the most the most interesting aspect of that to me is, is twofold. One is that Dr. Miller sees a path to not just uh, symptoms of of, of, of problems, but actually also potentially causation of the health effect itself. So, you know, generation of things like asthma from particular metabolites that occur when the fungus is growing on particular substrates. And the point that Dr. Miller made is that that the uh, the fungi that produce uh, triple helix D-beta-glucan, if they are um, using as a food source things that grow in the outdoor environment, don't seem to produce the triple helix version of D-beta-glucan, whereas if they are growing on typical building materials, uh, they seem to produce exactly that, which suggests that we have different... uh, a risk associated with indoor mold than we do with the same mold growing outdoors, and that again to me is uh, is not completely unexpected, but at the same time I think it's awfully important. And his research, as he rushed to say, was is still um, preliminary, and yet at the same time he was confident enough uh, about those results to talk about them at Indoor Air 2011, which you know, tells me he, being a very careful fellow, that uh, that this is close to being uh, uh, more widely published.
0: And then you start looking at the effect of sampling outside and comparing those samples to sampling inside, and uh, you know his research may uh, have an impact on how we do that in the future, perhaps.
4: Well, I think so, and, and, uh, and on the genomic side, on the, on the DNA analysis side, uh, and on the analysis of those fungal metabolites, uh, probably going to have better tools to do that and then it'll probably be easier to figure out um, what uh, what sort of things we've got in the indoor environment that might be causing people problems uh, that, that we didn't understand before because they don't cause people problems mostly in other environments. So that I think has been a problem that we've had for a long time. And if you if, if, if you add this this to the fact that there are so many bacteria and far more viruses in the mix. Um, what all the researchers seem to be saying is that you know, for negative health effects, we've got to be looking not at individual guy uh, and um, bacteria and viruses, but the, the combination of those that exists uh, in persistently damp buildings. That I found. Uh, again sort of intuitively right to me it makes sense <laughs> it's not just one thing it's a lot of things uh, and, and that is a, we sort of knew that before but the ability to then pick these things apart uh, and look at the synergy and put them back together and look at the synergies uh, uh, that are created when you have many different organisms millions of them in the same small less than one inch area I think that's going to be very promising for the next uh, for
0: the next several years Joe,
1: can you can you give us another one i, I you, you mentioned uh well, these have been fascinating, so let's keep going down the list until you run out list
4: <laughs> <Yeah, sure. Yeah. laughs> I got a million of them yeah i well, i I should say that that's the other thing about the uh about indoor two thousand eleven is that there were something something in excess of three hundred and fifty papers um given, and in those three hundred and fifty papers. Uh, the presenters had precisely 12 minutes to get all their points across for each of those. So, I'm hoping I got it right. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but, uh, but going on from there, uh, one of the takeaways um, that I have, and you know, one of my interests is measuring moisture, and we'll probably talk about that a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, Dr. Catherine N- uh, Christ, um from NIOSH and in West Virginia, Dr. Kay Kreis gave a presentation about indoor air investigations in, in working environments, usually offices, uh, office type environments. And what she pointed out, which I, I think is awfully important for the indoor air quality investigation uh, uh, industry and, and for all of us that, that do that kind of work, is that if you look at sampling if you look at uh, moisture content measurements, and if you look at uh, all the different tools that we have to try and figure out if there's likely to be a problem uh, in an indoor environment, she says that there's something that comes through very clearly. There, there are three things uh, that that are better predictors of, of negative health outcomes than are any of the others, and those three things and when they're present in combination, they're a very good indicator of potential health problems or increased health risk. And the first is water stains. And the second is uh, odors. And the third is visible mold growth. So if you have all three of those things present at the same time, then those are a better predictor that you're going to have a health problem than any one of them individually, or any uh, any sampling that uh, might suggest that you have a lot of any one thing in the air or on the surface. And I thought that that was awfully important, which is that you know we need to quantify things. We, we've got to do that. And yet um, those three elements, when taken together, for for the research that they've done, uh, and this is not in houses. This won't be in houses because it's NIOSH, National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, and so they're concerned with working environments. So the, for the buildings that they've looked at, those three things in combination are the best predictor of negative health outcomes. I think that's awfully useful for, for listeners who might not be indoor air practitioners, uh, but who might be concerned about you know their own indoor environment. If you have those three things, it's not a good idea. It's probably going to lead to negative health consequences for somebody at some time.
0: You know, we've got. I was going to say we've got a couple of minutes before uh, halftime. Uh, Lou, why don't you tell the listeners about the NPR article that you told told Joe and I about this morning? They might be interested in that.
4: Sure, I think that that was a, a very interesting radio article. Um. <laughs> Suddenly, the
1: Godfather joined the, the show. <laughs> the uh,
4: the article was from Ohio Public Radio, if I remember correctly, and it was broadcast on Morning Edition uh, on Wednesday, the thirteenth, just just two days ago. And what the what the radio article was talking about is the the problem of mold growth in foreclosed homes in foreclosed houses. And uh, so it's about four minutes. It's uh, quite interesting for those that might not be aware of the problem. I know many people probably are, but for those who are wondering about whether foreclosed houses have difficulties, it's a, a really good article to listen to. So it's on, it's, uh, it's NPR, and you can you can get that if you type in mold and foreclosed houses. I'm sure that that would, a Google search would get you there.
1: You know, Lou, that's it's interesting that Cliff brought that question up right after your previous discussion because I know, for instance, uh, groups like ASTM and now the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization and obviously home inspectors who are trying to evaluate these homes, they need a quick way of doing an evaluation that isn't terribly expensive and it sounds like the combination of using Dr. Kreis' three, you know, um, three things that typically will lead to a, a health problem of some type in the indoor environment, along and making sure those are a very important, if not the only part, of a screen on a building or a home would make a whole heck of a lot of sense. Yeah,
4: and I... I... Again, I, I'm i not going to speak for Dr. Christ, but I, I think it's important to make the distinction between uh, uh, those three things are going to lead to a problem versus those three, those three things when taken in combination are a good indicator of an increased risk. And that's, I think, what we've got to speak about with respect to health effects always is increased risk as opposed to it's going to be or it is a health problem. Just a quick sidebar on that.
1: I appreciate that. <laughs>
0: Cliff, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here, Joe. I think what we'll do is we'll do halftime, and then after halftime, you can come back with the first question. How's that?
1: Great. Thank you.
0: Okay.
2: Our association sponsors are the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com.
0: The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org.
2: And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit
0: them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental and consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com.
2: And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com.
0: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com.
2: And of course, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfactswithanx.com and cmmonline.com.
0: Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Joe.
1: We're back with Lou Harriman. Okay, we're back with Lou Harriman, today's guest, uh, Mason Grant Consulting, talking a little bit about Indoor Air 2011. Lou, I'd, I'd really like to just continue. I, I think you may have another good topic or two that you picked up from the conference that maybe you could share with our listeners.
4: Sure, I got I got two or three more of those. Yeah, um, the um, at at this point in the. In the discussion after some of these results, um, where my mind was going is, well, what do we do with this, with all this great information now? And then, uh, right along on, on schedule, came a, a forum, a, a discussion, a public discussion in the conference about, and the title was, "How to Protect the Public Based on What We Now Know." Uh, and this was led by Mark Mendel, uh, a public health uh, researcher for the state of California and Greg Reeser um, uh, of uh, New York State, also deeply involved with New York State's review of the mold and moisture problems. And Toby Bernstein, uh, uh, she's an attorney with the uh, with the Environmental Law Institute. And then, of course, Carl Grimes, uh, the a president and a and good friend and, uh, and scholar and gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> and what, uh, what those folks um, got from the... Uh, Well, from each other and also from the audience, uh, all of whom have been dealing with this, is that what we know, based on what we know now, if you boil it all down to its essence, is that we really don't want to have persistent dampness in buildings, and there are no known positive effects of extra moisture in buildings. So therefore, uh, to protect the public, what we need to do is to encourage things that keep Things dry, and uh, and especially keep things from getting wet, wet for long periods of time, and that I think uh, probably you asked earlier if about how this was likely, how these findings were likely to affect the efforts that we're putting in an ashtray on our own position document. What it does is it reinforces what what our position document is going to say, uh, which is certainly that will be the main point. Uh, but dry is good and, and damp is not and persistent dampness is not good for any purpose so therefore we should do things that don't let that happen. <laughs> when things get damp we should dry them out quickly
1: <laughs> And maybe we I'm just curious it made me it I, I have a picture in my mind of this big beautiful building and I walk into the entrance and there's a waterfall there Lou does that <laughs> <laughs> does that, well, that somehow be, tie into what you're talking about <laughs> that'd be persistent ornamental dampness yeah. yes 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 <laughs> uh, somehow I just can't quite wrap my head around why that waterfall's in that building, but maybe maybe it's just me. <laughs> <laughs> well,
4: I think it's probably there because it helps sell the building. I think uh, <laughs>
1: uh, I think it's
4: there for a good reason. And I mean, you know, really though, Joe, I don't I don't myself see anything inherently um, you know bad about that, except to say that you know it, it it's the same sort of thing that I get when I look at a at a building that doesn't have gutters. You know, mm-hmm. well. It's not good to have water at the foundation of buildings. If <laughs> it runs off and there are no gutters, then there's there's going to be an increased risk. So that's the the way I I look at you know ornamental water features and in, uh, in buildings. Uh, <laughs> but every time I see one, it definitely gives me pause. Uh, just a most recent example is that the ASHRAE conferences were held um, at the Hilton in uh, in Montreal, and uh, the Hilton. It's uh, an interesting hotel in that it begins on, I think, the 13th floor or 14th floor of a building. So you have to take the elevator up. And then when you look at the area, it's basically like a penthouse sort of situation. And you look at that, and, and on the top of this tall building, what we have is ponds and, and fountains. essentially. Uh-huh. <laughs> so what we have is a roof, essentially, that's decorated with deep and extensive water features, including a swimming pool (laughs) at that level. And I look at that and I say, okay, uh, increased uh, risk of moisture problems in buildings.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the the one that always comes back to my mind is a a sushi place someone took me to in New York somewhere, and we walked in the door and there was this huge indoor fountain. And I just, I don't know, I really had a hard time getting beyond that. I couldn't. (laughs) Uh, Sushi, indoor fountain, I don't know, It just kind of had me a little worried, Lou. But Uh, anyway, you mentioned there were at least two, if not three more, let's yeah. let's go through one more.
4: well, I think sure. um just two taken together, I think are are an interesting thing, and then maybe we could move on to different subjects but um the I mean we know when we're talking about commercial buildings uh, that the excess humidity that we have in buildings um, is partly water based and rain driven, but uh, on the h v a c side we also know that it's basically the ventilation air that's bringing in the extra humidity. So the amount of ventilation air has been a matter of great debate ever since uh, ASHRAE's first meeting in 1896. Um, it was the first subject discussed, and they figured they'd have it worked out by 1897. We're still working on that issue as to how much air we need to have for ventilation. So what was interesting to me is two, two, uh, uh, two things two Uh, One is the issue of ventilation rates and and acute health effects. A team of researchers, uh, uh, in part, led uh, by uh, Jan Sundell, uh, uh, a professor from uh, from Sweden and Denmark who's now working in China, and Hal and other, uh, and I think another half a dozen people, looked at the health effects of different ventilation rates, and they narrowed... uh, uh, a large number of peer reviewed publications to those that everyone could agree were um, were good from a methodology perspective and good from a reporting the research and good from nailing down the uh, the variables and what they what they did is they they looked at well what is the, what is the highest ventilation rate per person beyond which you cannot document positive. Health effects, and the number that they came up with um, after looking at all these different research papers and field field research uh, for you know health effects uh, is about fifty cubic feet per minute per person. Hmm. Well, that's a big deal for us in the HVAC industry because um, you know we're, we're we've been fiddling down in the. 7 to 15 to 20 CFM per person, effectively. We have a different way of calculating it now than per person. know also worry about how many square feet are in the building. But effectively, it comes down to numbers that are less than half of that amount. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to have health problems um, if it's less than that. It, it doesn't mean that at all. But what it does mean is that you can document beneficial health effects, never mind the other issues, um, general attention when you go as high as 50 CFM. But when you go above that, you can't find any documentation that suggests that there are any more, any more effects. So that, I think, will probably uh, begin to affect discussions about ventilation airflow. Um, and for those of us in the HVC industry, I think that what it's going, going to lead to is more careful measurement and documentation of what's happening day to day in ventilation. Um, the second thing uh, about ventilation, which is, again, struck me as being awfully important, is uh, 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 Dr. Pavel Gawke, uh, who is a researcher, very eminent researcher from the Technical University of Denmark, and he leads a team uh, that's been looking at ventilation and its effects on productivity, uh, not so much health, but productivity and beneficial results. And as part of that, uh, his group, Uh, has seen the same thing that he he tells me that that other people have seen, which is that we begin to perhaps understand the mechanism by which uh, the uh, increase in carbon dioxide uh, uh, marches in lockstep with with negative effects on attention uh, and and human performance. We, in the indoor air quality, uh, rather in the HVAC business, have always been told by the researchers that, well, carbon dioxide isn't really what we're terribly concerned about because we know that uh, you can get to very high levels of carbon dioxide without serious toxic acute effects. But what Dr. Vargaki has been, uh, and his groups and people that he knows of, uh, have been finding is that it might be a little bit more complicated than that. And carbon dioxide by itself... Uh, could be responsible for some of the problems that that we see with uh, drowsiness and headaches. Uh, they have seen um, basically that happening at very low levels, very small effects in schools and in offices, and and they now believe that they've got uh, a better understanding of. And uh, uh, Dieter Weil I'm sure, will want <laughs> to will, will want to weigh in on this subject because it's right in the middle of his expertise. But uh, what they what they have found is that they can document increases in uh, in uh, essentially acidosis. So carbon dioxide, uh, the way I understand it, you know, correct me, I'm sure, is that it backs up uh, in in your uh, in your bloodstream, and because your bloodstream becomes slightly more acidic, you end up having problems of health. Your breathing becomes more shallow because you don't want that that contaminant in your lung, and that leads to a cycle of. Uh, Generally, and ending in drowsiness. And the news is probably not that that happens, but that it happens at fairly low concentrations of carbon dioxide. And, and this is in the, you know, 1,500, 2,000, 2,500 parts per million level. Whereas I don't think that we were looking for effects like that until you reach 5,000 and above. So the idea that that carbon dioxide might well be an important contaminant in and of itself, and that perhaps more research will tell us the absolute levels, not the relative levels, but the absolute levels that would be good to keep an eye on. That's very encouraging because that will help us uh, figure out how much um, ventilation air we really need to have because we can use carbon dioxide as as an analog, not just as an analog, but also as a contaminant marker in itself. So that was important for me to hear. (laughs)
0: interesting hey, i joe, missed that one hey joe we've got about 15 minutes left i i think that what we should do is if you're okay with this is is number one i have lou talk about his presentation and and his concerns and we have a couple of uh text questions that i'd like to get in as well uh I, i'll ask one of those as, as part of the roundup but we, and we want to give Dieter some time as well
1: great well let's go to that presentation lou you you did a presentation, at least one. I don't know if you were involved in more than one at Indoor Air 2011. I'm hoping you can tell listeners what first the title of the presentation was, and you know why you felt that particular topic was an important one to present at this type of conference. Sure.
4: Um, the, uh, the the title of the of the of the the presentation that I gave, uh, remembering, again, it was a 12-minute presentation, <laughs> uh, was called The Geography of Moisture in Buildings, uh, and then the more techie title, subtitle underneath that was The Spatial and Temporal Variations of Moisture in Buildings, uh, the Factors Which Influence Microbial Growth Rates and the Ecology of Indoor Environments. Um, What I was uh, asked to do by some of the people involved in this Sloan Foundation research initiative, a major initiative, uh, major funding from the Sloan Foundation helping us to understand indoor environments, is to uh, help the microbiologists and the metagenomicists that are working in this area to think about buildings and the building environment and the whole subject of, of the bioavailability of water. And where that water is in a building, because if you're if you're a metagenomicist and you're used to doing PCR uh, amplification of uh, of DNA, you might not necessarily have thought in an organized way about um, about where moisture is in a building and the fact that moisture is really very heavily uh, influences what's living there. So as they're trying to understand the indoor biome, what lives in the indoors. Uh, Uh, one of the uh, key researchers in this area, Dr. Uh, uh, Hal Levin, wanted me to uh, uh, to help people think about where moisture is likely to be found in buildings, number one, and number two, how it's likely to vary over time. Uh, So that's what the subject was, and that's why they wanted me to talk about
1: it. Can you share some of the key points with with our listeners?
4: Sure. Um, I think that... um, Maybe the most important point is this issue of how moisture varies over time. And we get caught up in the building investigation business of taking moisture measurements in buildings in important places, places that are logical. But I don't know that we give enough attention to the subject of the wetting and drying of behavior in buildings and how in a lot of parts of the building it's perfectly normal for things to get wet and then they dry out, so that the, the so that the, maybe the problems or the, the areas that we need to think about are the things that don't dry out and why they don't dry out. Uh, and the fact that normal wetting and drying is not a problem. If you take a snapshot of moisture content at one particular moment, that may not be indicative of a problem. It might be more important to know... Uh, the range of variation of moisture in the building, and uh, and especially how long it stays wet, uh, exactly where it stays wet. Uh, one of the things that frustrates me and one of the points that I tried to make in the presentation is that when you look at reports from field investigation and you have, let's say, a report from a water damage contractor, and they're saying, this wall was at 13% to start, uh, and it was a 13% uh, at the end, and this other wall over here was at 29% moisture, and when we got finished, it was down to 14% moisture. And if there is no documentation of exactly where those moisture measurements were taken on the wall, uh, and if there's no documentation of which instrument you used to make the measurement the first time and the second time, then you really don't know very much about what that Wall, what those walls really are um, in terms of initial or ending moisture content. So, one of the things that I wanted to point out from the, from the perspective of, less from the perspective of investigators, because the investigators that were know all this stuff, <laughs> or at least most of them do. Mm-hmm. Certainly, the people at this conference know that. But the but the uh, the people that are doing the the analysis of well, microbial investigations of buildings in a laboratory. They have no awareness of these issues. <laughs> 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 they might take it for granted that, yes, we have a wood moisture equivalent of 16.772%. Of it. They might actually uh, you know, attach some meaning to that number. <laughs> 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 so that Excellent.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, we, we're we getting several text questions. So, Cliff, I think we'd we better get to the roundup and get to some of these text questions.
0: Okay. Let's do that.
2: Move them on, hit him up, hit him up, move them on, move them on, hit him up, raw hide. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out. Ride on.
0: Okay, let's go to Dieter first. All right.
1: I think we're having some problems with Dieter's intro music. Uh-oh. There he is. All right, Dr. Wild. <laughs>
3: I have the same CD right behind me, so I. Can...
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you can do it in the future; it'd be easier. <laughs> do your own cue.
3: Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, that's kind of uh, 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 unnecessary comment, right? <laughs> yeah, I do my own. Okay, anyway, now, I think Lou made a couple of excellent, excellent points, and a couple of them I have big question marks about. I think particularly for young people, they should go to these conferences. They meet the older people like me when I go there. They know what's on the market with all the tools that are available at the exhibits, and there are a bunch of papers that may be of interest to them. Uh, That certainly is uh, uh, something that I would recommend And I remember when I was a student and the University of Pittsburgh sent me to conferences, I learned a lot. There's no question about it. And you learn about the people. You meet them. Uh, Another good one is, and we mentioned it, is the summer camp up in Massachusetts. And I think it's wonderful that you can sit down over a beer or a glass of wine or a lobster or a shrimp, whatever it is, and talk to people who have been doing this type of indoor air quality work for years and years and years. I think that's an excellent idea. The other thing that I liked, and I have solved a lot of indoor air problems with good ventilation, and I don't like that stuff with 10 CFM per square foot per person and all of that. I always over-designed it, And it worked for me beautifully. And I think Lou has the same experience over there. The other thing is, now I don't want to live in a building that is continuously moist. I don't want to live in a building that is full of bacteria, even though my house has millions, if not billions of uh, bacteria floating here right now. Fortunately, none of them are pathogenic. But certainly living in a wet building um and i don't i don't care what mold is there and what mvoc the uh, microbial volatile organic uh, compounds they are producing it is it can't be good for you it can't be good for you it's impossible uh, the other thing is and i just wrote this down over here there were some architects and one of them built actually a very beautiful building near joe's uh, place in Somerset and uh, there were architects, they built houses over a river. That's a pretty dumb idea. On top of it, the roof leaked, so I don't know whether that is a good idea. Mm. The other thing I have here with three question marks is that CO2. I do not believe in that. I know a little bit about physiology and CO2 in the lung. SU, everybody over there, as Lou and um, Cliff and Joe and I uh, are sitting over here. We are exhaling from our body. That comes from our metabolism. And if you like it, you can call it biotransformation. That's how I was taught at the University of Pittsburgh. They didn't like metabolism, but that's what it is. As the body biotransferred the food that we are doing, it generates a heck of a lot of CO2. We are breathing out in my mouth, in everybody's mouth right now, uh, at least 5,000 ppm of CO2. Now, you, somebody want to tell me that 500 is going to, no, it's not going to kill me, nobody says that. That 500 uh, uh, ppm uh, that, that I inhale on top of that going to make me sleepy. I cannot believe this. And I, don't, and I don't believe it. And while I have you over there, we get ABIH uh, credits for the show, correct?
1: Yes. Absolutely.
3: Uh, how much do we get? Point 0.1 for one show or something correct. like that?
1: Point 0.1 per show. Uh,
3: point 0.1. Uh, I think that's a good one. And I think there are a lot of people, uh, uh, CIHs, certified industrial hygienists, uh, who may want to use this. Hey, you listen to 10 shows, you get one point. Nothing wrong with that.
1: Not a thing, Dieter. Hey,
3: there's a, there's a
1: text question that kind of ties in with your, your, quest, yeah, your comment. I'm, I'm shutting
3: up now. You go ahead.
1: <laughs> well, let me, let me tie it together with you. Uh, it says, Lou, can you comment on the importance of monitoring carbon dioxide levels to know how much ventilation is actually being delivered to the people? Sure.
4: Um, I my comment on it is sort of oblique to what we were talking about before, and I <laughs> I wouldn't even dream of uh, of getting into a discussion between uh, <laughs> Dr. Weil and Dr. Markaki on the subject of CO2 concentration and its effect on the blood stream. I, I'm going to let those two guys slug it out. <laughs> but all right, uh, I'm
3: ready. I'm in my corner here. <laughs> Can I bring a coach? <laughs> you'll 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 have to get to to uh, to, to Denmark to have that discussion. <laughs> uh, Let's see uh, if we can get him on the Denmark, show. He worked with me at the University of Pittsburgh. And <laughs>
1: we'll, we'll try and get him on the show, Lou.
3: Right, but uh, but yes, I, I.
4: One of the things that that has always disturbed me, uh, and to tap off of of your comment there, dear, about about ventilation and stinginess of ventilation. In the HVAC business, um, we are very concerned about the amount of ventilation air that we use because, of course, it costs a lot of money.
3: Yes, indeed.
4: But we're not so concerned that we ever actually measure it or control it. And that, I think, is the big problem that we have when when we get into these uh, uh, really nasty discussions about about the amount of ventilation air that's appropriate. There are two things about that. One is that uh, we really need to measure it uh, continuously and control it and vary it continuously for two reasons. One is so that we make sure that we have enough of it to dilute these problems, whatever the heck they are. But number two is so that we don't waste energy when we don't need to have that amount of ventilation air. And that is a monstrously huge opportunity for energy savings. It's being completely ignored by by owners uh, and by HVAC designers because they don't think that they can afford to measure and, and vary the ventilation air. And they can and they should. And that's what we'll have to do
3: if we're ever going to get
4: to our energy targets.
3: Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, um, yeah, you don't have to overventilate. I don't do that in my house, but I don't have a problem with moisture or anything else. And I don't ventilate, get up. I don't have an extra fan in here that runs 24 hours a day, but I solved a lot of problems with adding or a, 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 a fixing a ventilation system with good fresh air supply. And my philosophy is very simple: I, you hired me because you have a problem. I give you a solution. I am not paying. <laughs> I'm not paying for your energy bill, <laughs> but well, uh, it will cost money. There's no question about it. Uh, you have to during the winter. You have to cool it during the summer. Period. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it's, it's as simple as that.
1: Well, along the same lines, though, dear. They did, and, and Lou, they there was a lot of information presented about the actual comparative cost between having additional ventilation and the performance of the people within the buildings and that if you really looked at absenteeism and, and other items that that maybe we pay a little too much attention to the um, additional energy penalty when, when, with respect to what it actually costs versus the uh, performance of the occupants in the building. Lou, did you have any comment on that?
4: Well, I think that that's exactly what we would expect to have at an indoor air with the conference. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that the other perspective uh, that, that that everyone has to balance out is the cost of that energy, and the other result that that we didn't have at this conference, but Andy personally admits has, has has documented over many years of research is that. Most buildings, most buildings are are gross in the commercial environment, in the institutional environment, are grossly overventilated <laughs> by any I, standard. Yeah. That doesn't that doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of problem buildings, but as a percentage, the the bigger problem that we have, frankly, is on the, on the energy side for needless ventilation. So it's, it's it, it, there's a balance there. It's tricky. Well,
1: and you mentioned <laughs> control of the ventilation too, which exactly. is is also, I think, a very important key. Let me get one more of these text questions in, Lou. Um, I'd like to get the first one that came in. Uh, can, Lou, can you share your macro views or observations on moisture challenges in comparing vented versus unvented attics?
4: Um, the shorter answer is no, because it's too long a conversation.
1: <laughs> gotcha. All right.
4: But uh, but but, but to, to make a very long conversation very short. Uh, unvented attics that are tightly sealed and uh, and well insulated, I think, are the future because we want to put HVAC systems up there, and we shouldn't be doing that in in attics that are that are highly ventilated. So I think in the future we'll be building uh, airtight, well insulated attics, and I think that's where we're going. But uh, that's the that's the end of a very long conversation <laughs> yeah i got
1: you i got you let's let's slide one more in real quick uh cliff if you don't mind
0: sure luke can you comment on the importance of monitoring dew point temperatures to rapidly identify elevated moisture conditions
4: sure again that that's it's really tough to compress that into a into a, a brief sound bite but the the problems that we've gotten into in the indoor air quality investigation business with tracking relative humidity I think are they're they're severe uh, because we we think in terms of relative humidity uh, and we're sort of calibrated for 70% RH is high and 40% is low and it's meaningless because we don't think about the relative humidity at the surface of the materials in question which is the only place that relative humidity makes any difference what we really ought to be doing um, and, and I has several examples of this in the presentation that I gave, is if we keep track of the dew point in the air, then it's a really easy thing to think about where that moisture is likely to condense and therefore causes problems over time. So it's very cheap these days and quite accurate, accurate enough to keep track of the dew point, both in terms of building automation systems and in terms of handheld devices, to keep track of the indoor dew point and then think, therefore, about the surface temperatures in the exterior wall or inside. That are likely to be really close to that temperature if they're really close to that temperature we know that we have a very high surface relative humidity and there's likely to be a problem or like you know like where we want to look and find out if there is one so dew point I think is a terrific variable that we you know should all use more often than we do uh, and surface temperature measurements are another thing that go along hand in hand with that I'd love to have an instrument that shows us surface RH which is Maybe we
3: can take that up with the Lorenzi's when they
1: talk right,
3: together. There right, right, right. <laughs> we go. I yep, agree 100%. Yep. Yes. It's unfortunately one of those things that <clears throat> we know what the temperature is and we know we kind of know what relative humidity is. You know, we sweat more when it is high. But at dew point, you know, that throws a lot of people and they don't know what to do with it.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, Lou, that was a great. Actually, I appreciate guest nine, I guess, who sent that in, or guest six. Um, that was a great question to help you kind of give a quick overview summary of what a point you were trying to make, I think, in your presentation, and I missed the presentation, and I was dying to hear that answer. So thank you, Blue. Thank you, guest nine. And... um I guess, Cliff, at this point we should just ask, Lou, is, is there anything you'd like to add before we go? And absolutely, we've, we've got to get you back because we could have talked for another hour for sure.
4: For Sure. <laughs> well, nothing that I want to add, other than to say thanks very much for the, for the opportunity to, uh, to to talk to the audience and to share some of this great information from from researchers. I, I think I think it's an impressive crowd of people that that we have coming along in research.
0: Lou, how can our uh, listeners learn more about you and your business?
4: Um, that's pretty straightforward. Uh, the uh, The website is uh, masongrant.com dot uh, com and that, that will take you to the website and, and tell you quite a bit about what
0: we do. Okay, perfect. Well, before we leave, we always like to thank our guests. Today's guest was Lou Harriman, Mason Grant Consulting. I want to thank my co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, our engineer, Austin Novak, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our growing audience of loyal listeners, Please come back and join us next Friday at noon when we talk to attorney Harvey Cohen for our next broadcast of IAQ Radio. Another IAQ Radio production.
1: Call recording has been completed.